You are listening to First Church Charlotte. preach today on this theme of Father's Day. I don't preach a lot of messages that are directed towards, say, mothers or directed uh, for, per se toward fathers, but I wanted to do it today, and for a title, I'm going to play off of a popular book series that was written um, a few years back entitled Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and uh, the book series basically is uh, written by an individual uh, who had two father figures in his life, and one of them taught him good principles of investing and budgeting and the difference between um, things that uh, might be uh, fun to own but would never have any internal rate of return and pay you back as an an asset, say, uh, versus things that are, you know, uh, they're indulgences, but they have declining value over time. And he told the story as a parable of sorts uh, between these two fathers and the different lessons they taught and entitled the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, one of the best-selling of the investment book series. Um, if I were to be completely transparent, <clears throat> I, would, I probably would pick uh, some other investment books over that one. There's some, but as far as a parable, I don't know that there's ever been an uh, investment book that it has, is, is better set to a parable. Uh, there are some other ones, um, uh, such as Og Mandini's book, The Richest Man in Babylon, uh, which my father made me read as a teenager. Um, yeah, dads, you should give your kids reading assignments. And so uh, the parables can be powerful ways to convey a truth. This idea of two different paths toward your financial future is helpful. I want to take it in a bit more of a spiritual turn today. And I want to use it as a, an idea, uh, rich dad, poor dad, but I want to do it like this. I want to teach it as good dad, bad dad. Now, the only thing bad dads are good for is making hamburgers <laughs> because the best hamburger joint in the area is bad daddies. And um, so <laughs> one of the best anyway, we could argue about that. But um, their jalapeno bacon is not to be missed just in case you were in the mode to torment your tongue. Anyway, uh, good dad, bad dad. Now, when we use uh, fatherhood or uh, Father's Day as a teaching series, you're, you're very, very used to people preaching about, say, Father Abraham. Uh, you're very used to hearing about the patriarchs. You're probably used to hearing about Joseph, uh, the father that Jesus chose uh, to, to raise him, <laughs> the father that God chose to raise, uh, the manifestation of God on earth, Jesus Christ. Um, that would be uh, very common to hear. Today, I may surprise you by taking you to the book of Esther. Now, Esther is an Old Testament book, and it is about a young lady, and you would not think of this book in terms of a message or a, a, a Bible study entitled Good Dad, Bad Dad, but I think you might be surprised at the lessons that are, are in this book. And so I want to remind all of you, if you haven't for a while thought about the book of Esther, I want to remind you that in some ways you might call it the original Cinderella story. Uh, 
It's about a young orphan girl who goes from being uh, parentless and alone in the world uh, to a place where she is adopted and she is elevated. She is elevated. I'll tell you the story here in just a moment. She is elevated from really just being an orphan girl to being the queen of the greatest empire in the then world. And uh, so real quick, some background so you'll understand the context. Uh, The adoptive father of uh, Esther was not the natural father of Esther. Um, His name was Mordecai, and interestingly, uh, as far as we know, he was single. He was not married, and as far as we know, he had no children of his own. However, he was a very successful uh, man of influence in the kingdom. He did his, his business at the gate, which is in the terminology of the time, a way of saying that his business had to do with the business of the empire, where, where adjudication happened in the gate, uh, which is a phrase to refer to the principles of justice within an empire. He very well may have worked as a lawyer or something along those lines because that was his whole life. He was a member of an oppressed minority. Uh, As a Jew, he was living in Persia. He had come to live there through the destruction of his homeland, Israel, and he had been taken there against his will, literally as a slave. And there he had Come to, uh, come to preeminence. He had risen in the world. You see the good stewardship. You see the hard work. You see the excellence. You see the dedication of this individual. But uh, he, coming to a certain preeminence, he has given his whole life to his career. Uh, however, his uh, family has a tragedy. And he discovers that his cousin is a little girl, a very young girl, who has been visited by tragedy, and Esther has lost both her mother and her father. And Mordecai chooses to become a father. Mordecai chooses to become a father. This story, uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's telling, uh, it's going to teach us some things here, here today. I want to, before I get too much further in the story, I, wanna, uh, I want you to realize that these are the people who it would be easy to feel as though they have been left behind. There have been three expeditions from Persia back to Jerusalem. The first of them was led by Nehemiah. He led by God and given the favor of the king. He leads people back to the city of Jerusalem and there they begin to rebuild the walls and they begin to having finished the walls and hung the gates, they begin to lay the foundation of of the temple there. Uh, They lose their momentum. They, They have this event where they're going to celebrate the raising of the temple or the uh, let me let me be more precise they're going to celebrate the laying of the foundation of the temple but something happens there among the people uh, the young men shouted and the old men wept and it was so 
it was so debilitating to the courage of the people to have their elders weep about where they were and what they were doing. Uh, these elders uh, idealized the temple that had been destroyed. Now, these elders themselves had never seen the temple. Too many years had passed. Uh, but they idealized it. And they were so disappointed by the foundation that they wept while the young people thought they should celebrate. And uh, this is how, in some, t- some, in some way, there is, I don't have time to get into this now, but uh, there's a way to see how one generation can in some way wound another generation. Because the, the young generation that's doing the building, they stopped work. When they realized uh, that it, it, they, they would never be able to please or accomplish something uh, that the elders would approve of, they, they stopped work. And this was not the will of the Lord. So God raises up a second man, and this is Ezra. And Ezra comes, and his message is not rehang the gates. His message is not rebuild the walls. His message is let's finish the temple. We cannot stop with just a foundation. It's not enough to have a a desire to have a, a better civil world. We need to have a place where we can worship God. Uh, we are citizens in a nation, but that can never be more important than the heavenly kingdom we are a part of. Can I have an amen? And so these, these uh, second expedition restarts it. Uh, they still are struggling to finish it. And uh, the third expedition is sent. This is led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And he is the third expedition leading a large number of people to Jerusalem. Uh, back in Persia. There are Jews who could not go. For whatever reason, they could not go. It's easy to believe that the moment has passed you by. It's easy for you to begin to believe that God's great work is somewhere away from you. It's easy to think that, man, they're having revival in this continent, but here we're just grinding it out. It's easy to feel like the momentum has passed from you to someone else and begin to wonder whether or not God sees you whether or not God knows where you are. It would be easy for these people left in Persia to think God's not focused on us anymore. He's moved on to Jerusalem. But this whole book of Esther is about how God saves people who didn't make it to Jerusalem. They're still in Persia. Wherever you are in your life, I want you to know God sees you. Whatever you're dealing with, I want you to know God knows your struggle. God knows your fear. God knows your pain. Whatever suffering you're having to deal with, you can be assured that God knows where you are. And so it is here that uh, there are... Uh, events that happen. So you've met the princess in the story, so to speak. That's Esther. You've met the good father in the story. That's Mordecai. Uh, now you're going to meet the king. Two names, the easiest to pronounce is uh, Xerxes, and he is king of Persia, the largest empire in the world at the time, 127 provinces stretching literally. If you look at a map, this is very impressive considering the travel limitations of the day, stretching from end 
Arabia in the east all the way to Ethiopia on, uh, in the west on the continent of, of Africa. Here is an empire that stretches from Asia to Africa and it has one dominant king, Xerxes. If you've ever heard of the laws of the Medes and the Persians, this comes from the era of, the, uh, of Xerxes and his word was considered immutable law that could not be changed. Not even he could change it. He would have to find some way to uh, uh, alter it. He could not He could not do away with his own decree. He had to work around that. This is where their culture was. And they did everything as a people through banquets. They were the real party animals of history. If they needed to do business, they did it by having a banquet. If they needed to do geopolitics, they did it at a banquet. Weddings, funerals, everything was at banquets. So, Xerxes hosted a banquet for all the leaders of his provinces and all of his allies. It was a six-month party. Now, I don't know about you. I like parties for about six hours. And after that, I'm ready to go to bed. And um, the next day, I'm done with the party. I have no desire to do any more party. Um, but they had a six-month party. Remember, this is how they did everything. And in the middle of this, um, the, something happened. Now, the queen of Persia was a modern woman before her time, and you'll understand in just a moment, because Xerxes, uh, in the party, actually, this isn't the six-month party, wait for it, wait for it, this is the seven-day party that Xerxes threw at the end of the six-month party to commemorate the end of the six-month party, party animals, enough said. And so it's at this that he's drinking with his pals, uh, women weren't invited to these parties, you know, to all you women, you've come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, they, they weren't invited, but this drunk king acting, you know, what is it that the wise man says in Proverbs that, that, that drinks, that, that drink will make a fool of otherwise smart individuals, that drink will mock someone who in other circumstances would be wise. That's what's happening here. Xerxes is going to act like a fool and he asks his wife to come and parade before the men. Well, she knows what's been going on at these parties. They're men only parties, use your imagination, lots of drinking and whatnot going on at these parties, and she thinks to herself, she thinks to herself, you know, he doesn't want me to come to this party so I can demonstrate my superior intellect. He wants me there to show me off so the men can leer at me, and she, um, modern woman, she says, I don't think so, and she refuses to go. So, story continues. Xerxes says, well, that'll not be, and he sends out a writ, a, a legislation to all the provinces that every man should be in control of his own house. You see, this is a bad dad moment. If you have to win through dominance, you failed before you got to that problem. One of the things in which I have been blessed in my whole life, the whole of my life I've been blessed in this fact, that I was raised by a man who did not need to dominate people in order to feel like a man. If you grew up in a house where there was a man who needed to dominate you in order to feel like a real man, you had a very painful uh, upbringing. Real men do not need to dominate the people they claim to love. Real men do not need to use force in order to, uh, in some manner, uh, legislate a home that's supposed to be built upon affection. Um, and so this is a bad dad moment right here. And uh, so here we are in the story, and he formally divorces his wife. That's how the queen is lost. 
in Acts number one. So far, we have a king, we have a young lady, Esther, we have a good dad, we have a divorced queen, and now they host a search for a new queen. They get Ed McMahon to host Star Search. And so the decree gets sent out all across the land, and uh, everybody tries to find the most appropriate woman. I want to point out something here for you ladies. This is not simply uh, a beauty competition in the form of masculine lust. Uh, these, uh, the king has concubines. It's more than that. This is about a person who can represent us all, a person who has poise, a person who has class, a person who is the whole package, not just the prettiest girl at the dance. Sometimes, um, uh, you know, <laughs> let me just move on. That's an awkward subject that's going to cause trouble here. Uh, <laughs> my wife's already given me that look, and I'm going to send out a writ to all my providences saying that I'm in charge of my house, bless God. <laughs> and so, uh, here is this reality. A search is for the new queen, and this orphan girl is brought to the attention of the king, and this girl who went from being uh, an orphan has now become uh, the queen of the greatest empire in uh, the then world. Let me say something about good dads here. Mordecai chose to be a father. He didn't have to. Uh, he was a man of means. He could have arranged for her care and keeping uh, simply by writing a check and finding the right person. He could have pondered off on other family members. He could have found a way out, but he chose her. And then, having chose her, he invested in her. You don't get the class and the poise and the intelligence. Yeah, she had to be beautiful. That's 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 a that's kind of like the, a, a base, okay? But to see how she operates in this court setting, which I'll tell you in just a moment, she's a person of judgment. She's a person of courage. She's a person of intelligence. She gets the game she's forced to play, and having been forced to play the game, she plays it well. You will see this. He didn't just do the minimum for her. He invested in her that she could become the kind of person who could be in this story. Uh, the leadership uh, guru and teacher Stephen Covey, he wrote something that I loved I want to share with you right now that is, I think, uh, it's the Mordecai principle, if you'll allow me to call it that. He says the most important decision a man can make every day on his drive home from work is to choose to be the father of his children. To, in his mind, on his way home, choose to adopt and readopt them ornery crazy kids that are waiting for him at his house. And having done so, to choose them, not to be stuck with them, not to just do the minimum, but to choose them, to invest in them. Good dads choose their kids every day. And so here you see a young woman who it's not enough for her to be pretty. She has to be intelligent. She has to be uh, um, uh, uh, have class and poise. She has to know how to handle herself in uh, mixed companies of state. She has to have the whole package in order to be chosen for this role. And so the story in this moment moves from her. She's chosen queen. But the story now moves in act three, if you'll allow me to uh, give you the story like that. Um, 
in Act 3, the story moves to Mordecai. And what you see in Act 3 is not Esther's character. You see Mordecai's character. There's a plot in the house of the king and two villains. Um, they plot to overthrow the king. Um, one of their name is Bigthana and one of their name is Teresh. Now, these guys sound like villains. If you're looking for beautiful names, think about Bigthana as a name you can call your kids. Bigthana, you better come home right now. What did I say to you, Big Thunder? Anyway, you get the idea. And so <laughs> they try to overthrow the king. And what does the um, Mordecai do? He hears the plot, tells the right people the king's life is saved. It's written down, the Bible says, in the court record in the presence of the king. The story does not demonstrate Esther's character first. The story demonstrates Mordecai's character. How has it happened? First of all, he took in his orphaned um, cousin. She was his cousin. And she, he chose to care for her. That's about his character. He invested in her so she could become something more than just the prettiest girl at the dance. She can represent the empire. That's his character. And in terms of loyalty to his king, you see not her character. You see his character. Why is that important? This is a, a good dad moment. Here's why. Because character must be caught. It's it's not really taught. Um, you can lecture kids all day, but the truth is they are catching the character that is being thrown at them every day by the people in their lives. You demonstrate character. You do not demand character. And when there is a crisis and a crisis comes, let me explain the crisis and then I'll come back to this issue of character. Uh, there is the second in command of the kingdom is the man by the name of Haman. And Haman uh, number two in the kingdom. Um, for some reason, Jews do not bow to him and uh, he hates them for it. Everyone else will bow. This is typified in the court by uh, Mordecai who will not bow to him, but he hates the Jews uh, because they will not bow to him. I looked in some of the rabbinical uh, histories trying to understand this because nowhere in the Torah is there a, is there a command that you cannot bow to a dignitary. Nowhere in the Torah. And in nowhere really in Jewish history is there this consistent teaching theme, theme of people not bowing uh, to dignitaries, uh, Jews not bowing to dignitaries. Um, you won't find that. And yet, the Jews of this time would not do it. So I researched some of the rabbinical uh, resources on this, and uh, there's a lot of these that are available online now. In fact, the vast majority of them are on. And the thought is this, uh, something about his address uh, would not allow them to bow. What they think happened was he wore the image of his God as a medallion around his neck. And now, having the medallion of a God around his neck, the Jews could not bow to him because that would be bowing to another God. And now, rather than showing honor to a dignitary, it was idolatry and they would not bow to an idol. Now, there is commands in the Torah not to do that. And there is deep principles of rabbinical tradition where they will not bow on pain of death even. They will not bow to a, a, a graven image. And so uh, he, uh, Haman, with this graven image, perhaps and most probably around his neck, all of a sudden Jews will not bow. He hates them for it. Mordecai will not bow. He hates Mordecai for it. 
He hatches a plan to kill them all. Genocide in the Persian Empire against a minority of uh, people, the Jews, at this, at this time. Uh, the house of Israel goes into mourning. They, they, they obviously don't want to die. They know what is happening. They're wise to it. They begin to pray. They begin to fast. And when Mordecai sees Esther, which he would have done as her father, even after she was queen, when he sees her, in the time people mourned publicly in their dress, she could see he was mourning. She asked him, why is he mourning? He tells her why. Fathers, I want you to see what's about to happen in this moment right here. He tells her she is afraid worried, terrified too because of this uh, that could happen to her people. It would not have applied to her. Uh, Perhaps it would not have applied to her. Who knows the inside workings of the empire at the time, but she could not allow her people to go through this. She, uh, she, in this conversation, is challenged with this, this spiritual insight. Esther, it may be that you have been placed where you are for such a time as this. This is not just a good dad moment. This is a good spiritual dad moment. Because what he gives her is the gift of expectation. I've always believed that God would use you. To all you dads out there who want to be good spiritual dads, there's a gift you can give to your children, and that is this. I've always expected God to use you. I've always believed that God had his hand upon you. I know you've done some dumb things. When I was your age, I did some dumb things too. I know you've done sinful things. I was a sinner just like you. I understand, but I've always believed that God would use everything in your life for his kingdom. He could have raised a little victim-minded person. Woe is me. I had suffered at a young age. I lost. He would not let her see it that way. He turned it to the spiritual and said, it may be that everything you've gone through, every tragedy, every blessing has been because God was always going to use you. Let me just say to all our young people here today, I believe God was always going to use you. I'm just excited to see how he's actually going to do it. Let me say to all my young Christians here, my young believers here, I've always believed that God was going to use you. I just have been waiting to see exactly how it was going to happen. Every good thing that's happened to you, every bad thing that's happened to you, my God can turn it all into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this book really isn't about Cinderella or a Cinderella story. It really isn't about the princess. It really isn't about the little orphan girl who became the queen. Let me tell you what it's about. It's about how God saves his people. It's a book of redemption. And so, in this moment, she... Esther is brave, she's intelligent, she's calculating, she exercises good judgment. The investment Mordecai has made in her is about to pay off. But the intelligence would not be enough without character. You have to, when push comes to shove, you have to be willing to risk it all for that reason for which God made you and God ordained you and God gifted you and God preserved you. She's going to have intelligence. 
it's, she's going to exercise judgment. I'll tell you the story here in just a moment. But all in it all, is, it's all built upon a character that will risk it all. Now, back to character. Character must be caught. It cannot simply be taught. Children don't get much from lectures. That doesn't stop us dads from giving them lectures. I make my kids suffer through lectures on a regular basis. I don't even care. They just have to suffer. Lord knows I suffered. It's their turn. And so, uh, but that's not really how character gets. That's just how parents feel better about the crazy kids living in the house with them. Uh, Lectures really aren't for the kids, they're for the parents, so the parent can sleep at night. Kids catch character. You demonstrate character. That's why in the book of Esther, the first three acts show not Esther's character, they show Mordecai's character. Let me speak to all you good dads out there. There's a reason why you live a certain way. Your kids are going to catch what you demonstrate. There's a reason why you don't talk bad about people in the church when you go eat lunch after church. There's a reason why you don't pass on gossip where your kids can hear it. There's a reason why you don't lose your temper and act the fool in front of your children. I'll tell you why. They're going to catch you. For better or worse, they are going to catch you. And I hope the virus of you blesses them and does not curse them because they are going to catch you. God help my children. Got to keep them away from my wife, Lord. Um, and so Esther now is going to demonstrate the investment that Mordecai has made for in her. Uh, he understands that she cannot simply live for Esther. He understands that she has been placed by God. He understands that God has a purpose for her. And um, he is quick to challenge her on what that purpose may be. Good dads challenge their kids for spiritual purpose. Good dads know how to believe and speak faith into the hearts and the minds of their their children. Esther doesn't know exactly what to do in the beginning. She simply asks all the people of Israel to pray and fast with her. That girl's learned something growing up in the house of Mordecai. And they go on a a three-day fast with her. She has to figure out how she can get this information to the king. The king can't be predicted. You can't tell the king what to do. Uh, he, it's, it's, it's like the horse whisperer. You can't walk right up to the horse. It'll run away. You have to kind of walk at an angle and never look at it. It's that kind of a problem. How do we let the king know? And she's intelligent. She's smart. And she's also uh, aware of how she got there and she's aware of how God has blessed her. Her name in uh, uh, the Persian is Hadassah, which means dazzling beauty. You knew this story was going to get good, right? Um, <laughs> dazzling beauty. Her name Esther in Hebrew means a shining star, a star in the heaven. And uh, she knows she can't just go in because of the law. She can't walk in. If she walks in uninvited, and she risks being put to death. And so she says, well, I can't do that. What can I do? She's thinking the angle. She's playing out the court game. And so she goes and she puts on on her favorite dress. She puts on her favorite perfume. She gets her favorite heels. She makes herself up so fine that even uh, the fairies fly by and think, oh my goodness, that girl is so fine. And she does not even, uh, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. All you suckers have been in love, even if you quit acting like it. (sighs) Well, I hope you have. (laughs) And so (laughs) she goes to the court 
the, 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 the entryway to the court. She doesn't come into the court. And she just walks back and forth in front of the court. Oh, just little old me. Just little old me. And here he is in the court doing business. And he's like, well, the province and the booga booga, uh, the economic impact has went up 3%. And the crop looks like it's coming in two weeks early. And he looks up and she walks by and he thinks to himself, hallelujah. <laughs> when I was a single young man in the church, we couldn't date people outside of the church. So we would say to each other, when we ever saw a really pretty girl, we would say, mm, that girl needs Jesus. <laughs> The truth is, we were the ones who needed Jesus. <laughs> That's what the king is. He's like sitting on her throne as she walks by. He's like, hmm, victory in Jesus. I'm getting spiritual up in here. And he's like, <laughs> Red Rover, Red Rover, send Esther right over. And uh, she's like, oh, little old me? And she walks into uh, the court, and he's like, my God, woman, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom, uh, which is a, a, a style of speech. They don't literally give away half their kingdom. Uh, that's just like you saying, my God, I'll give you the sun, the stars, and the moon, which is how Anthony met his wife. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> And so uh, she understands she's smart. She understands the game she's stuck in. I always feel sad for people who can never step away from the, the life as they're forced to live it and try to understand it. She understands. Now, you can talk about justice or injustice. It doesn't matter the world as you wish it were. All that matters is the world you're stuck in. And she is using her intelligence. What can I do? And so she can't just go in and make demands. There, there, there will be games played. So she just asks for a lunch date, literally. And the king's like, well, yeah, we can do that. And she said, why don't we bring Haman Remember, Haman's the one who's trying to kill all the Jews. And so uh, it is here. It is here. Uh, she does not tell the king what is up. They have the first meeting and nothing. She's waiting for an opportunity. She doesn't know how to say it. She's using her brain. She's, uh, she understands the court. There's no opportunity. She doesn't, she doesn't rush right in. Oh, Mordecai has raised an absolute majesty of a young lady. She does not rush in. She doesn't play the fool. She doesn't play the victim. She is playing those cards close. And so here she is. And afterwards, Haman walks out. And guess who does not bow to him on his way out? Mordecai does not bow to him. And he decides that's it. I'm going to build a gallows. I'm going to hang Mordecai. And Esther is praying. All the people are praying. We've got to do this right. We can't just rush in like fools. This matters. And so um, she asks for another lunch date. And in between, there's this plan to hang Mordecai and begin this plan of killing the Jews. And uh, that night, Xerxes, the king, he can't sleep. And he asks for the court record to be brought to him and, and read to him. And so this happens and the story is told to him again uh, of uh, a man in his court, Mordecai, who saved his life. And he says, what did we ever do for this man? And the story is nothing. And so the next morning he asks Haman, who is number two in the kingdom, what would we do for a man who saved the life of a king or saved a kingdom? And uh, Haman, uh, being a narcissistic uh, a sociopath, he's like, oh, he thinks it's himself. He's like, oh, have, uh, lead him through the kingdom on the king's horse and let the people bow down and worship him. And uh, Xerxes is like, great idea. 
idea. I want you to go get Mordecai and put him on my horse and you, I want you to lead him around. He doesn't know that Haman hates Mordecai. Mordecai is horrified by this and he has to lead, excuse me, Haman is horrified by this and he has to lead Mordecai through the city on the king's horse. He is irate. And now, having this happen, they come back for their second lunch meeting, and the king asks again of Esther. She didn't rush in. She wasn't, she wasn't foolish. She didn't need to be taken care of. She was smart. She knew how to play her cards. This time, she thinks, now, now's the right time. Now's the, the, now I will, I will play the game or, or make the move. And this second time, uh, she asks, after the gallows has been built... If she'd have made the accusation before there was gallows, there would have been no evidence. This is an this is an impressive young woman. She waits until everything is lined up. And when it's, the gallows are there and everything is set for Mordecai to be hung, now she brings up the subject. Oh, yes, my Lord, there's someone who's trying to kill my people and uh, et cetera, et cetera. She tells the story. The king gets so mad. He leaps to his feet and he runs out of the room. Leaving her there with Haman. Haman knows he's messed up. He has been outfoxed. He has been outplayed at his own game. And he begins to plead with, uh, with Esther for mercy, which wrong person. And in doing so, she, he, he addresses her or touches her in a way that's inappropriate to the kingdom. And when the king comes back in, the king catches him addressing her in this way, and, oh, he just is having a bad day. The small of the story is this, or, or the end of the matter is this. Haman is hung on the same gallows that he has prepared to hung, hang Mordecai on, and the house of Israel is saved through a young orphan girl who had a good father and a mighty, mighty spiritual purpose. And the book of Esther becomes a story about redemption, how God takes orphans, adopts them, prepares them, invests in them, and then places them for such a time as this. You see, my God is the ultimate good father. And he knows how to adopt the spiritual orphan. He knows how to find the person who feels all alone. They feel abandoned. They feel like they've lived a life of tragedy and loss. And our good father says, I will take you as my own. And he doesn't just save you. He invests in you. He doesn't just provide for you. Uh, he prepares you. He doesn't just make a place for you. Uh, he gives a commission to you. We have uh, a good father who finds spiritual orphans, saves them, provides for them, blesses them, invests in them, uh, and sends them out into the mission of his calling. And so this image, this story, this, this book of the Bible uh, shows us how Haman, through the adoption of a young orphan girl, he could have found a way to get out of it, but he chose her and he invested in her. He prepared for her for the world as it is, not as he wished it were. Uh, as 
Christian parents, as spiritual leaders, we have to use biblical principles to prepare people for success in the world as it is, not protect them from the world as it is in the hope that they can live in an alternative world. No, we are called to represent divine mission in this world. And Esther is protected when she needs it. And she's provisioned for when she has no one. And she's invested in until a day will come when her victory for the house of Israel will not simply be a testimony to her upbringing, to Mordecai, or even to God. It will be a story of who she could become as a testimony to God, a testimony to the nations. That's why there is a book in the Bible called Esther that is not about in the religious manner of other books. It's not primarily about the things that God does himself. It's a story about what God does through his people, his covenant people. That's the image of it. And so we see this beautiful story. Musicians, you can come. Let me end with three let me end with three principles that I, I think just leap out of the story. And they are particularly good for us fathers, but more than that, they're good for all of us. And that is this. Uh, first of all, don't get in the business of doubting the providence of God. Don't get in the business of doubting that you're somewhere and God doesn't know where you are. Don't fall into the habit of believing that because of some experience in your life, that's the reason why you cannot be used of God. You need to see that God is in the business of adoption. He is in the adoption business. We were all of us dead in trespasses and sins. He came to his own. They received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. We are all of us adopted by our good father. Uh, secondly, uh, dads, we cannot underestimate the importance of investing in our children. Not just providing and not just protecting, but investing in them. You need to be the number one promoter of the Make Your Kid Great program. You need to be the person who speaks life over them. You need to be the person who expects great things from them. You need to be the person who believes that they actually are capable of more than they would think they're capable of. Because in your eyes, they're not just a kid, they're, they're anointed. They have mission. They have purpose. They have calling. And so this is a principle that's true for all of our leaders also. Any of you who have mentoring relationships, you have young believers, you have young people, you have new Christians in your life, you need to be a steady source of blessing. Isn't it interesting that at this same time, the counter example is the example in Jerusalem where they cannot build the tavern, the temple, because the elders are too busy romanticizing a season before that it kills the faith of the people trying to do it, the generation trying to do it. The same time that's happening, over here in Persia, there is a man talking to his orphan daughter saying, I don't know how and I don't know when, but God's going to use you.
it could be just a time like this. There is this interesting way in which there is generational blessing. There is generational faith. The first expectation you have of yourself is the expectation given to you by your parents. The same thing is true spiritually. The first expectation new believers have is the expectation of their elders in the faith. And when we speak life to them and we speak faith over them and we believe great things for them, it is a continuing blessing in their life. And they have a capacity for faith they would never have had if you had not spoken that blessing over them. Lastly, never underestimate how God can start with an orphan child and save a people. Never underestimate how God can take what seems to be another sad story, another tragedy, and turn it into salvation for his people. I think God would like to do that through us. I think God would like to, as a church, use us to proclaim this hope, proclaim this gospel, proclaim this divine promise to our generation, to our community, to our neighborhood, to our cities. Would you stand with me all across the house? Right where you are, I would like you to uh, direct your attention toward heaven. If you'd like to close your eyes, that would be appropriate. If you'd like to lift your hands, whatever feels like worship to you. I'd like you to focus yourself right now uh, in the presence of the Lord. And I would like you to ask Him to anoint you to raise up strong people of faith. If you are a parent, I'd like you to ask God right now to give you the ability to transmit faith to your children in the expectation you have of them. If you don't have children, but you are strong in the Lord, I would like you to ask the Lord right now to help you mentor young believers, help you mentor people who haven't had the spiritual opportunities you are and need to find place in the family of God. Would you pray right now? Lord Jesus, would you help me? both in the natural and in the spiritual to mentor the weak. Would you teach me to embrace the loss? Would you teach me to make space for the orphan, oh God? Would you show me a way to manifest the good heart, the good heart of our heavenly Father to this world, I pray, Lord Jesus. Let this house be a house that resonates with the gospel of hope, the word of promise, a message of faith. Lord Jesus, when we worship together, let there be a feeling of divine hope among us, oh God. When we come together, let there be words of encouragement one to another. When we meet with young believers and new Christians, help us surprise them with the spiritual expectancy we have and the faith we speak over them. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Let this house be a spiritual adoption agency, oh God. Let this house facilitate the spiritual orphan finding you. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. 
you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.